Father, we're thankful that you have uh, brought us safely to this place tonight that is comfortable and extremely conducive to, to being together and studying your word and, and being in your presence in, in a large group in such a way that, that we are edified by each other and inspired by your presence and, and changed by your spirit and, and, and made more wholesome and in the thinking and the purity of our own heart, Father, we are, we are changed into the image of Jesus. Thank you for this time and, and thank you for this text and all of these texts that we're going to be looking at tonight, Father. We pray that as we read them and hear them, that we will see them with eyes that truly see and hear them with ears that truly hear and, and be blessed by them and turn toward you at all times in this life, Father, as not only the author of our salvation, but the very author of our life. We pray, Father, again, that You bless us in this way, for we seek to, to glorify You in all that we do in, in this city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if I've ever told you this, uh, but my step-grandmother uh, from Arkansas was a Pentecostal preacher. She uh, lived up in the Ozark Mountains there in the northwest part of Arkansas, out in the middle of nowhere, in the backwoods, uh, not a whole lot of neighbors, but a, people would kind of come out of the woods to come to this little church that, that she had built. And one summer, uh, we uh, went up to, uh, to visit her, and she had this great idea. She turned to my dad and said, why don't you leave the boys here and they can spend the summer with, with me? And we kind of looked at each other and said, oh my goodness, Dad, 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 look at us. You know, we don't want to be here. And Dad didn't look at us, and he said, well, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. You, you know, this is a great place. They can kind of see where I grew up. And so we, we were dumped in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, for an entire summer. It was the greatest summer I ever had. And part of, uh, part of that was, was just being around uh, my grandmother, who, who was, was a very, very devout person, and she decided that since I was the oldest and had just gotten into middle school, junior high at the time, it was seventh grade, that uh, she wanted to send me to a camp that a bunch of the kiddos from northwest Arkansas, the high school and middle school kids, were going to that, believe it or not, was all the way over in west Texas in this little town outside of Abilene called Buffalo Gap. And so we got into the, the, the truck and drove, uh, it, it seemed like forever, finally got there, went to camp. And the camp it had hundreds of kids there. It was a very, very large camp. And uh, one night, as we were all in the, the big assembly room, uh, they showed a movie. And this movie was about the end of the world. And it was uh, very premillennial and dispensational in its makeup. There was, uh, you know, there was these 666 tattoos on these evil creatures and the mark of the beast tattooed on the forehead of all these other individuals and there were Nazi-like figures that were marching around and, and Christians were being persecuted and, and there were terrorist groups and there were bombs that were going off and there was this gigantic threat and it was all about this, this period of tribulation and we're sitting there and we're just scared to death. I, you know, I had grown up in, a, in a, 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 the Church of Christ and had a completely different view of these things and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm going, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And, I, you know, what in the world? I had never been exposed to this kind of stuff. And it scared the life out of most of the kids that were there. And I remember we were going back that night to, to the dorm 
just uh, talking about this because, you, you know, with all of the things that it was saying, I mean, we just, we didn't have a clue as to what to expect, what the Bible was really saying about these things and when was Jesus going to come back. And we had a counselor who was kind of this, this hippie football player type that, uh, you know, it was kind of obvious that he had run into a lot of hard objects head first uh, over a period of time because he, he was at least sensitive enough to realize that we were really nervous about this and kind of scared in our little, you know, seventh grade heart. And he said, well, here's the deal, boys. Uh, you want to make sure that, that you get the phone numbers of those girls you've been talking to and that you really meet them because, you know, Jesus might come before the end of camp. And, and we're looking at each other and say, I don't think this guy got the gist of the movie. And I, I just kept thinking, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I, I'd never heard of any of these things. And, you know, the one thing that was true is, I, you know, I didn't want to be left behind. Well, many of you are old enough, like I am, to remember there was a really famous book that came out in the 70s by Hal Lindsey. The book is up here on the screen. It's called The Late Great Planet Earth. And you remember that that book sold about 30 million copies. And there, were, there was a lot of speculation in it based on the fact that Israel had come back into the land. There was uh, a, a lot of stress points around the globe because of the Cold War. And everybody was saying the end is coming, the end is coming, and Jesus is going to be coming back. Nobody really knew when, but they just knew that it was going to be soon. Don't buy green bananas. He's coming back soon. A few decades later, uh, just to, to kind of prove that in our culture, you know, this was not something that just died away, there was another series by Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. Do you remember the name of that? Left Behind sold about 65 million copies. You know, in, in our culture, in North America, there is just a lot of interest in the end of the world and, and how history is going to bring an end to, to, to human history. And lots of generations of people have kind of grown up, especially in the last 100 years, wondering how in the world this is going to happen. What is it going to look like when the end of humanity comes? Uh, for most of us that were growing up during the Cold War, you remember that there was, um, there was a lot of tension, there was a lot of fear. Uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of fear, especially among young kids growing up during that period of time, that these two nations that were very, very powerful in stockpiling nuclear weapons would, would blow up the world in trying to blow each other up. Uh, that later, that, that kind of fear kind of morphed into a fear that, you know, it's not going to be these gigantic nations, but it's going to be these little terrorist cells. And that one of these little terrorist cells is going to, to, to kind of become suicidal in its philosophy and, and get a hold of some nuclear device and detonate some kind of a megaton device and, and start World War III, and that would be the end of the world. Uh, more recently, even, you know, in the last couple of years, maybe the last decade or so, a lot of websites you can go to on, on the Internet talking about kind of this environmental holocaust where because of global warming there's going to be all of these things that take, plas uh, take place, uh, cataclysmic type things that take place in the world and it's going to extinguish all of humanity. Ah, let's step back from that from that for just a minute. You know... When you think about all of the, the gigantic things that God has done in the Bible, you think about creation where God has created everything that we know from nothing. You think about the flood. Uh, you think about the day standing still in the book of Joshua. You think about uh, the, the Hezekiah and, and Isaiah telling him that he's going to, to get another 15 years and, and the shadow moving backwards 10 paces. 
You, you think about the cross of Jesus and how our salvation was wrought in His self-sacrifice. You think about all of the great things that the Bible talks about, another piece of, of history, another great event that is a part of that group that's going to rival all of that is going to be the second coming of Jesus. God has done amazing things, but the amazing things have not stopped. There is going to be at least one more, and that is when Jesus comes. Now, what is it that God has in store for the end times is a, it's just a gigantic question in a lot of people's minds and a lot of people's hearts. And there's a lot of information out there that, quite frankly, I, I think is not just wrong. I just think it is an, an abuse. It is so erroneous that it's just an abuse of the text that we find in the Bible. And what I want to do tonight is I, I want to give us five words that we can, I want to hang this message on five words, they all begin with the letter R, that talk about the end of, 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 of time and the second coming of Jesus. Five words, they all begin with R, and you can write them down on that outline. And uh, before we even get very far into this message, I just want to say, uh, because of time constraints, I'm not going to be able to deal with all of the minutia that you find in this area known as eschatology, the study of last times or end times. Uh, I'm not going to be able to say anything really about seals or bowls or, or, or any of uh, the, you know, the, the, the 144,000 or any of these other things that we read about in the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, we'll save that for another time. Uh, there have been classes that we have offered here on the book of Revelation as well as on the end times, the second coming of Jesus. You can get those notes, you can get those sermons and those, those uh, MP3s and listen to those. What I want to do is to kind of give us about a 5,000-foot view of these things, the, the big picture of what the second coming of Jesus is all about. So the first word, and you can write it down on your outline, is this. It's the word return. Scripture says that Jesus is going to return to the world. In that text that Jordan read to us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, uh, 16, the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. He will come back. He will come down from heaven. Go to John chapter 14, verse 3. He's talking to His disciples. And He says, I will come back and take you to be with Me so that you may also be where I am. I will come back. Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Here's the disciples. They're with Jesus for the last time. He, they, they are hearing His final instructions and, and uh, his, his instructions on, on what they're to do with their life and to go into all of the world and, and to uh, preach the gospel and to baptize people and to raise them up into disciples, plant churches, these kinds of things. And He ascends into heaven. The angels show up, verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, finish the next three words, will come back, will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. Summary statement on these three verses, Jesus will return. One of the things that, that is uh, never really debated about by any, elk, any, any flavor of theological scholar is this fact, that Jesus is going to return. But when you get down to Jesus returning, there are a lot of questions that people have in their mind. A lot of questions come up. The first is, and it's kind of inevitable. The first is, when will Jesus come back? 
Well, you know as well as I do, there are a lot of predictions, uh, mainly, again, gross misuses of the text. But let me say with blinding clarity that the Bible says no one knows when Christ will return. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Underline that word. Write it down on your outline. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, I've never... Uh, there's probably a lot of things that, that I should never have done, but one thing that I've never done is steal something. I, 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 I've never stolen anything, but one thing that I know about thieves is that they come at the most unexpected moment. They look for that opportune time in which they will not be detected, they will not be spied out, and people see that they are taking something that doesn't belong to them. Jesus, in drawing that, that, that metaphor into the second coming, or, or excuse me, Peter, in using that metaphor to draw out a teaching about the second coming of Jesus, says, you know what? Nobody knows. It's going to be like a thief coming in the night. It'll be at the most unexpected moment. It'll be, in other words, when you're not looking for it. Now, let me just say, you know, there have been all kinds of debates and, and all kinds of dates that have been given about the second coming of Jesus. Let me just say as your minister that there should be an appropriate level of cynicism about dates. No one knows. Are we there? No one knows. Secondly, where on earth will Jesus come back? Well, again, uh, a question of geography. And again, the Bible is not, uh, uh, does not specify a place. What the Bible says is that the second coming of Jesus is going to be a universal event in which the entire world is going to participate. Everybody will see Jesus come the second time. A passage that we've been looking at in Philippians chapter 2 on Sunday mornings, remember what he says in verse 10, Paul says to the church, the name of Jesus, when he, is, when he comes that second time, it's going to be that every knee bows before Him in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The point being that Christ does not come to just any one place. It's going to be this universal cataclysmic event in which everyone will see Jesus coming and everyone will acknowledge Christ on that day. So... Jesus is going to return. Second word, reckoning. The word reckoning as in judgment. One of the, the passages that are not, you know, it's, there are lots of passages that are not very popular with modern men, but one passage in particular, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, says this, and it's very unpopular, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face what? Judgment. Everybody dies. And after you die, everybody faces judgment. Everybody dies, everybody is judged. Everybody faces judgment. According to the Bible, there is no next time, next time, next time, next time, next time, next life, next life, next life, as in reincarnation. What the Bible teaches is that everyone will meet their Maker. Everyone stands before God. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. We all stand before God's judgment seat. Drop down to verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now, uh, friends, it, it is a, a, a humongous, colossal human deception to think that we live without accountability in this life, that there is no personal responsibility for our actions. And part of that comes from the fact that we live in a, a, a modern culture, a Western culture, that has placed 
as the highest value. The, the highest value in a culture, in a society, is that of tolerance. No one is allowed to judge. But one of the things that the Bible is clear over and over and over again is that our lusts and our greed, our vices, as well as how w well we have lived in obedience to God, is all going to be brought into this, this reckoning. Jesus himself says at the end of his ministry, uh, there in Matthew chapter 25, he says, you know what the end of time is going to be like? It's going to be like sheep and goats coming together. And he says, all the nations, verse 32 of chapter 25, will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from, from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he says, you know, there are some, some folks, the goats, that are put on the left, that were not very obedient. They did not in their life demonstrate, they did not manifest the fact that grace and forgiveness and God's mercy and the gospel had penetrated them, that it changed them. And he says, you know what? There were hungry people and naked people and people in prison and sick people and, and strangers and foreigners and you did nothing in the name of God for these people. And some of the, 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 the most terrifying words, quite frankly, some of the most frightening words that you will read in the Bible, verse 41, as he says to these folk who, who in no way demonstrated a, a, a faithfulness, a, 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 a grace-filled, compassion-filled, mercy-filled life, he says to these people, depart from me. Depart from me. Depart from me. Some of the most terrifying words in the entire Bible are these when God says to these folk, Depart from me. Basically, what God is saying is that to those people who have all their life said, Depart from me, God. I want to be separate from God. Depart from me. I want to do my own thing. I want to, I want to do my own thing, and I want to think what I want to think, and I want to live accordingly. And say, I want to be separated. There's a, a, a degree of separation between God and me. God is going to say, Well, you have said to me, Depart from me all your life. You're going to get what you want. Now you depart from me for all of eternity. God allows the decision that we make in this life to follow us into the next. Now there's a lot of debate on the reality of hell these days. I, quite frankly, I think the Bible is very clear on it. Hell is where the presence and the power of God is removed and evil is allowed to run its course. There is no presence of God in that reality and it is literally hell. I mean, you think about what the Bible describes as common grace. Hebrews chapter 1, the first couple of verses, talks about how God sustains with His Word the universe, which means that, that there is, there is a, a presence of God and a power of God that keeps the earth together and the universe together. Think about what that means if that Word is pulled away. The Word that sustains and holds it together is pulled away. What that means is that imagine the evil that we know now that's kind of held in check, the, the terrible tragedy that we experience now that's held in check, the, all of the, the terrible suffering and the death and the disease, that's, it doesn't seem it at times, but it's held in check. Once that's taken away, what happens? That evil and tragedy and suffering and death and, 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 and every other hideous thing that human beings can invent in the imaginations of their, their mind that will overrun unfaithful mankind like a tidal wave. 
That's why when he says, depart from me, in that reckoning, in that judgment, that is one of the most frightening things that a human being can hear. That is not an outcome that you want to be a part of. You do not want to be a part of that hell that God has reserved for those that have said to Him all of their life, depart from Him. But there is something special for those who live in obedience and in faith to God. That is the resurrection, the third R word. God is the creator of life. God loves life. He created it. There is no one that is more pro-life than God. I mean, you get to Exodus chapter 20, and right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, you have, thou shalt not kill. No more killing. And, and uh, uh, when, when Christ describes the kind of life that He holds out for people as a blessing, He describes it as a life that is lived to the fullest. It is, it is an abundant kind of life there in the Gospel of John. And, and God hates death. And, and God hates the sin that brings it into His creation. And when Christ Himself died on the cross for our sins, death coming to the Christ, do you remember what happened on the earth? The earth convulsed with all of these earthquakes. At the death of God's Son, the sky turns black like midnight, even though it's the middle of, of the day. All of that a reminder that God is a God of life. And do you remember the, 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 the response of Jesus when He's there at the tomb of Lazarus in, in John chapter 11? And, and he's, he's, he's weeping because of what death has, has, and sin has brought to his friend that he loved, Lazarus. And, and the text says in the original language that he snorts in anger at what it is he has seen happen to his friend Lazarus because of sin and death. God is for life. And he's the author of life. There's no one that is more pro, pro-life than God. And when his son returns, there is going to be this, this massive worldwide resurrection and there are all kinds of verses on it Uh, we don't have time to read all of them but look at these verses they should suffice to get our minds wrapped around this idea of resurrection first thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 the lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of god and the finish the verse dead in christ will rise first first corinthians chapter 15 If you've never read at one sinning 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is the high point of the teaching of the resurrection in the New Testament. Spend some time this week just going over that text, the entire chapter that is about the impact of the gospel in people's lives and especially about the resurrection at the end of time. But in verse 51, Paul says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And we will live with God forever. Which leads to the next R, and that is reunion. It's one of my favorite words in the entire English language. Is there any better food that you will find on the face of the earth than that that is found at a reunion? It's about being with the people you love. I've told you about, uh, you know, how my grandmother would come running out of the house, my, not, not the, the preacher, 
sort up there in Arkansas, which was, she was just a, a, a great woman too. But my, my mother's mother, who would come running out of the house when we would drive up there on 1415 Ruth Street in Arlington. She'd come running out of the house. Get out of that car. Get out of that car. Come into this house. Come into this house. It was about being with the people that you loved for an extended period of time. And when Jesus was getting ready to, to be crucified and, and to be resurrected and to ascend into heaven, He's trying to get His disciples to understand and, and to help them to embrace this, this, this event and to understand it. And He tells His disciples that He's going to go away. And they are, quite understandably, they're upset at the prospect of their life being lived on this planet without Him. In other words, they wanted to keep the band together. And Christ said, I'm, I'm going, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you with Me. And then they watched Him depart and the angels appear and they say, you know what, why are you looking at the sky when He's told you these are the things He wants you to do? Know that He is going to come back just the way that you saw Him leave. And I don't know, but I, I suppose if I were in their, their sandals, I would do the same thing. But if I were those, those, those disciples, I would check the sky every morning, check the sky every evening to see if He was coming back. And why would they do that? It was because they missed Him. You know, uh, 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 one, one of the, the, the really significant events in my life this last January, you know, Father passing away, that relationship that we had shared on earth had begun to, to diminish as, as, as disease and, and the COPD had, had taken over his, his body and then there comes... You know, the day when he it just, it, it was sort of like he just kind of snuck out of the house and he's gone. And I, I have been sort of surprised that every day I think about heaven and I think about my father in heaven, which has made me think about all of those other people that I've loved but maybe never really thought about as much until my, my father died. Think about that reunion of all of those, of those people. And why do you do that? Why do you think about that reunion? Whether it's on earth or in heaven, it's because you miss these people. I think serious disciples of Jesus, they don't get caught up in a lot of this nonsense of the eschatology industry that's trying to you know, sell books and, and upset people and talk about dates that nobody really knows about and to talk about things that are not really true at all. But I think serious-minded disciples, they think about heaven at least five minutes every day about what the first five minutes on the other side of eternity is going to be like. And it changes the way that they live. Knowing that, that we're not really separated from God and we're not really separated from these people that have died. But there's going to be a reunion. You know, one of the things that I was always reminded of when, when, when we drive up to that grandmother's house and she'd come running out of that house is that even though I'd not seen her maybe in two years, still connected. And even though I had not seen her for two years, she kept reminding us that this is your family, this is your family, this is your family. And, and when we think about what life is like, not after, you know, life after death, but life after life after death, when there's that resurrection and there's that great reunion and there's that bringing together of people that have not only loved each other but loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think that it just changes the way that you live every day. To think that that, that God that, that I prayed to for decades and decades and decades, I now see that one. 
And for the, for the last 31 years, uh, going on 32 years, that Ella and I have been married, every meal that we've sat down together, whether it's just the two of us or with our family or, or by ourselves, to sit down and to know that one day we're going to see the one that we have prayed to every, at every meal, thankfulness and gratitude that He has provided this food for us, that we get to see Him. And the glory of His light shining in the faces of all the ones that we love, that have gone on before us. Reunited with them. What a compelling thought each day to have. Stafford North, uh, many of you know, uh, uh, Branch's uh, brother-in-law, they, he has a, a license plate on his car that says what? Be there. One of the things that he says to his kids, he says to his family, whenever they're together, be there. Be there. It's a reminder of the reunion, of the, the greatness of that reunion. It's so great that he even put it on the license plate of his car. Be there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. We will be with the Lord, finish it, forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When's the last time that you took one of your brothers or one of your sisters and you said, you know what? We're going to spend all of eternity together, together, my brother, my sister, in the presence of God. Isn't that encouraging? When's the last time you did that? One of the, the most neglected commands of Paul is this one, to encourage each other that one day we will be with the Lord forever. And then the last word is this, ready. As in, are you ready? You know, for disciples of Jesus, uh, you, you know, to, to live your life in a lazy sort of way, in a lack, lackadaisical way, is not to be in step with, with the mission and the kingdom of God. You are a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, which means not only do you have a presence, or, or excuse me, a present in this present day in which you are called to glorify God and, 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 and to disperse the, the, the gospel wherever you go, and to live in such a way that when you do your good deeds, God is glorified, but you're also called to live your life in light of one day you're going to be with the Lord forever. And when you think about the, the, that presence in which there is no cancer, no leukemias, no bone uh, marrow diseases, that there, there, there are no thieves, there are no murderers, there are no cartels, there are no terrorist cells, there's no megaton bomb to live in fear of. There's no terrible dictators. There's no, there's, there's no uh, uh, terrible bosses or employees or in, uh, unjust judges anywhere in God's heaven. Why in the world would, would you live a lazy life in light of the truth of, of, of God's resurrection and God's heaven? Are you ready? Do you look to the sky every day do you, do you pray for the coming of Jesus? Do, do, you, do, you, do you look forward to that time in which you hear God say to you, come into my heaven, my good and faithful servant? Does it change the way that you live? The flip side of that is, are you ready in the sense of have you given your life to God in such a way that you will never hear Him say to you, depart from me? you who are cursed into eternal punishment. You know, we're all guilty. We are all guilty. 
There is no one who has not sinned. There is no one who has not committed a crime against God's good creation. There is no one who has ever lived perfectly except one Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross as your substitute in love and in willingness voluntarily took your sins on and died the death that you should have died because you could not live the life that you should have lived. He died in your place so that you would have a chance to enjoy God's heaven because of forgiveness and because of grace and because of mercy. All of that sacrifice done in love. And the Bible is pretty plain. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And are you willing to confess that, that you are, you're going to take the hands off the steering wheel of your own life and allow Him to be Lord and Master? That He is going to steer your life. That it is His will that you're going to be obedient to. It is His Word that you're going to be faithful to. Are you going to confess that He is Lord? And are you going to participate in His death, burial, and resurrection by being baptized and having your sins washed away? And receiving, as, Paul says, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, receive this gift of the Holy Spirit that not only marks you as, 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 as God's Son, but also helps you along the way in, in helping you live that holy life by strengthening you. I don't know how it works, but I believe that the promises of Paul are true in Ephesians 3, that somehow that Spirit strengthens you in the inner man, that in Galatians 5, when you walk in accordance to, to, to God's Spirit, somehow over time you turn into a loving person and a gentle person and a kind person. All that fruit of the Spirit blossoms in your life organically and botanically in a sense. It's a metaphor that he uses. And that one day, because your sins have been washed away and because you've dedicated yourself into becoming like Jesus, conformed to that image and, and living your life the way that God has, has willed it and, and bringing glory to Him and sharing your faith with other people, that one day, because you've humbled yourself, you're going to hear Him say, Come into my heaven. Come into my joy. Come into my presence without fear. There's two options. Come or depart. Depart or come. And if you do not want to hear the word depart, then we want you to come down to the front this morning and talk to our shepherd about how you can be baptized and how you can access this grace that the gospel talks about, that, that God makes available through the cross of Jesus. And these shepherds would love to receive you this morning, but come down to the front and talk to them as we praise God together. Let's stand and sing this song.